the Cyber Education of FBI Director-designate Christopher Wray. And is the U.S. government overreacting by restricting the use of Kaspersky's security software? These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's ISMG Security Report with a confession of sorts by FBI Director-designate Christopher Wray. It came during his confirmation hearing held earlier this week by the Senate Judiciary Committee. We'll get to that confession in a moment. Nominated by President Donald Trump, Ray served as Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division during the George W. Bush administration, reporting to the man he is to replace as FBI Director, then Deputy Attorney General James Comey. At the hearing, Ray said all the right things. He vowed to be independent and pledged his loyalty to the Constitution and the FBI, not any individual. That was in response to Trump's request to Comey to pledge his personal loyalty to the president, which the then FBI director refused to give. Shortly later, Trump sacked Comey for not halting an investigation into allegations regarding fired National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's dealings with Russian government officials. During his testimony, Ray addressed several cyber topics. He testified he favors reviewing the expiring spy program authorized in Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Act. He balked at the idea of creating a cybersecurity unit with the Russian government proposed, then dropped by President Trump. Ray also sidestepped giving his opinion on the debate over unbreakable encryption. He did promise to work with the technology community to identify a solution. Being out of government for 12 years, Ray confessed he has a lot to catch up on regarding cybersecurity matters. He identifies cybersecurity as one of the FBI's top three strategic priorities, along with counterterrorism and counterespionage. One of the first things I need to do is, is sit down with the senior management of the Bureau and start getting briefed up on all of the areas uh, that the FBI is responsible for. But since my guess is I'm probably furthest behind in some ways just because of the advance in technology on the cyber front, I would want to prioritize in particular spending more time on some of those issues early on just because my own learning curve, as is true of anybody who's been out of that uh, with the breakneck pace and advance in technology, would be impacted. Ray concedes his knowledge gap will require him to quickly get up to speed on the threat cyber poses. Here, he responds to a question from Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass on the ability of the FBI to address the threat cyber presents. Well, Senator, I don't think I know enough to be able to make a really responsible evaluation of the resources. What I can tell you is that my sense is that as much as everybody is talking about the threats uh, of the sort that you're describing, I have the sense that we are just scratching the surface of how grave the threats really are, or at least how grave the threats are about to be before we blink and wake up. Now, I, that's really based on just what limited information I've, I've, conversations I've had with people. But my sense is that one of the biggest changes I've seen from being in law enforcement for a number of years and then being out and now starting to get reintroduced again, whereas cyber was a sort of discrete topic back in, say, 2005 that had a lot of attention. Now, in 2017, cyber in many ways permeates every aspect of national security, of in the intelligence community, of every type of criminal conduct we deal with. It's become part of the fabric, both of our security, but also of the threats uh, to our security. And I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that we're doing nearly enough. I think we can always do better. That's Christopher Ray testifying at his confirmation hearing to be FBI director. 
The White House is moving to restrict the U.S. government's ability to use products from the Russian cybersecurity firm Kaspersky Lab to discuss why the Trump administration is taking this step and whether security products from Kaspersky pose a threat. I'm joined by Data Breach Today Executive Editor Matthew Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. What action has the administration taken? The General Services Administration, the GSA, which handles a lot of the IT purchasing for the federal government, has delisted, that's its terminology, Kaspersky Lab from two of its schedules. They cover photographic equipment and related supplies and services, as well as IT equipment. That's the line item that you would check if you are procuring things for the federal government and want to use GSA contracting capabilities. I spoke to GSA and I said, what does this mean? They said, this doesn't mean that you still can't get Kaspersky Lab products, but if an agency or department wants those products, it needs to do its own independent risk analysis before it decides to purchase them. What is the risk of using Kaspersky products? A lot of people have been asking what the U.S. government is worried about. And if it is worried about something in particular with Kaspersky Lab, then to either put up or shut up. Kaspersky Lab has a 20-year history. They're extremely well regarded. They have done a lot to crack down on cybercrime and to work with law enforcement agencies, which are perpetually stretched and which simply don't have enough expertise when it comes to breaking up online crime rings, which stretch across borders and have access to incredibly automated and effective attack tools. You need private industry to step forward and help. There are a lot of years of the firm having proved itself. What it's facing are are basically backroom chatter, all of it's off the record, on background. There have been a lot of stories in the U.S. press recently telegraphing supposed concerns that the administration has with Kaspersky Lab. The FBI is reportedly probing it as well. What are these concerns? Nobody knows. And in my discussions with security experts, it's not clear to them what would necessarily raise the alarm. One is left with asking if there's some misperception at the root of the supposed paranoia, if you will, in the U.S. government over the potential use of this Moscow-based antivirus firm's products. Does the GSA restrictions involve products from other vendors that incorporate Kaspersky's technology? That's a great question. There's a lot of noise happening here, and it's tough to ascertain what the GSA delisting really means. I asked GSA that question, and I didn't get a straight answer. Kaspersky says it's technology, specifically its anti-malware detection engine, gets used by 120 different vendors. That includes Juniper Networks, which is obviously a U.S. firm. An anti-malware engine only uses malware signatures. So it's unclear to me that there would be any risk at all that anybody could make over the use of that technology. Going forward, it's unclear whether organizations such as Juniper will have to justify their use of Kaspersky Lab's anti-malware engine. I think we'll have to wait and see is the short answer. Next up, Matt Schwartz addresses allegations that Kaspersky's chief executive has had ties to the Russian KGB. It is true that Eugene Kaspersky went to a university that was sponsored by the KGB. We'll be back after this message. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report. ISMG's Global Summit Series will be taking place at the Marriott Marquis in New York on August 8th and 9th. Hear from subject matter experts like Randy Trezak of Carnegie Mellon on insider threat detection. Learn more about ransomware, endpoint detection, malware, and more. Visit events.ismg.io and register today. We're back. I pick up my conversation with Data Breach Today Executive Editor Matt Schwartz. 
ask him about allegations of Kaspersky lab leader Eugene Kaspersky's ties with the Russian Secret Service. It is true that Eugene Kaspersky, who founded the firm in 1997 and who is his CEO still, went to a university that was sponsored by the KGB. But you could say the same thing about a number of people in other countries, for example, in the United States, who go to cybersecurity programs that are part of the NSA cybersecurity education program. If you look back at Soviet Russia, the best universities often had some kind of sponsorship or relationship with, for example, the KGB. That in and of itself is really not a smoking gun. How is Kaspersky reacting to all this? Eugene Kaspersky has offered to try to provide any information or evidence that might satisfy these kinds of questions. Here he is with more on that. If uh, they, are, they need, uh, I can come for the Senate testifying. Uh, well, actually, we are, we are open, we are transparent, and we are very flexible. So anything I can do to prove that we don't behave maliciously, uh, we will do it. Okay, what security dangers does the use of Kaspersky products pose? At this point in time, based on the evidence that's been put out into the public sphere, none. I've spoken with security experts, and their guess is the U.S. government is worried that Kaspersky's products could somehow be used by the Russian government to infiltrate U.S. systems. For example, potentially via updates. Maybe the Russian government could somehow hijack the update process and push code out through Kaspersky's updater that might infect a U.S. agency, potentially. But the IT experts I've spoken to said this is extremely unlikely. Doing that even once and having it get detected would burn this private Russian business. There's no evidence it's happened. It would be a very clunky and blunt way to attempt to attack U.S. government systems. And let's be honest, Russia is accused by the U.S. intelligence establishment of having disrupted the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. Did it need to hack into government systems? Apparently not. How did it do it? It used social media, it used information warfare, it used propaganda, it used very low-cost, high-impact techniques there's a lot of brouhaha over the fact that Russians have been meddling in the U.S. political process. Those are obvious, profound concerns, but it's not clear and it has not been proven that security products built by Kaspersky Lab had anything to do with that, have anything to do with security ails currently affecting the U.S. government. How should an organization, inside or outside of government, assess the value and security of Kaspersky products? When it comes to antivirus and anti-malware products, there are a number of third parties out there that do head-to-head testing. And Kaspersky Lab, amongst other firms, has in the past rated extremely well. I think that has been behind their success. They've had more success in the North American market, and obviously they play in other markets as well. As with any software product, do your due diligence. Now, to what degree do you factor vague, unspecified threats coming via people speaking on background to U.S. publications? That is for organizations to decide. That is potentially also for organizations to ask Kaspersky Lab to respond to. And they've put out a number of detailed rebuttals. Do your due diligence. Should a government agency in the United States be using a product manufactured by a Moscow antivirus firm? That's a question. I don't have all the answers. They may decide that it's not worth the risk, but it all comes down to due diligence. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Donald Rucker is the National Coordinator for Health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services, a position he was named to in March. 
For the first time this past week, Rucker faced the media in a teleconference, and Healthcare Info Security Executive Editor Marianne Kolbasaklicki participated in the call. Marianne joins me. Welcome, Marianne. Hi, Eric. In a moment, we'll get to some of the changes happening under Rucker's leadership, but spend a few moments to explain what the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT does. ONC develops standard and policy guidelines for the HITECH Act. That's the law that regulates the Electronic Health Record Incentive Program. But ONC is also focused on advancing nationwide secure electronic exchange of health information. Under the leadership of Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price and Rucker at the Department's Office of National Coordinator for Health IT, the approach to patient privacy is changing from that under the Obama administration. How so? The Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT is phasing out the position of Chief Privacy Officer. Under the Obama administration, the Chief Privacy Officer and the small team of people who worked with her focused on security and privacy issues related to electronic health records and certified health IT. Rucker says some of the responsibilities of the Chief Privacy Officer at ONC can be handled by the Office for Civil Rights. Now, the Office for Civil Rights is primarily responsible for the enforcement of HIPAA or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HIPAA provides data privacy and security provisions to safeguard medical information. Here's Rucker speaking at the press briefing. We're in early discussions with the Office of Civil Rights, the uh, folks with HIPAA. You know, a lot of this sort of gets into the HIPAA law, and we're working with them on how to parcel out these different tasks. For example, right now, the acting head of that part of ONC is Devin McGraw, who actually is an uh, attorney in the Office of Civil Rights. And so, I mean, that gives you a flavor of the kind of uh, joint stuff we've been doing. Are stakeholders concerned with the elimination of the chief privacy officer? Well, I'm not sure if stakeholders are too concerned about whether or not ONC has a dedicated chief privacy office or officer within the agency, as long as privacy and security issues don't get lost in the process of ONC's ongoing work related to the interoperability of electronic health records and secure data exchange. Rucker says privacy and security are issues that are embedded throughout ONC. Rucker says that ONC is also collaborating closely with its sister agency at HHS, the Office for Civil Rights. At the briefing, did Rucker discuss other steps ONC has taken to assure the privacy of patient records? A lot of the broader discussion that Rucker had with media members focused on ONC's efforts related to improving interoperability of EHRs, and that means the ability for different vendors' EHR products to share data with each other. Open application programming interfaces, or APIs, are tools that software developers use so that different software components, including health IT software, can talk to each other. But Rucker noted that APIs used to improve interoperability of EHRs also need to be secure. When we talk about open API, this is not like just opening the door and anybody can come in. These are open APIs with authorization and trust networks and trust frameworks and, you know, encrypted passwords and things like that. So there's an entire stack of privacy and security concerns that are very technical that are throughout the agency. So we will absolutely continue with that. The secretary has a lot of work going on in cybersecurity. So it is implicit in every single thing that we do. 
So the bottom line is that while ONC might appear to be giving less attention to privacy and security matters by eliminating its chief privacy office, Rucker promises that HHS in general is still very much involved with efforts to improve the protection of healthcare data. Thanks, Marianne. Thanks, Eric. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time. Thank you.